Welcome once again to Tea Time on Christmas Day, or as we say at the monastery, Buddha Mass Day. Welcome. I hope you bring your your questions to the to Tea Time. Our first question comes from Sacha in New Westminster, Canada. Sacha, we're ready for you to unmute your mic. Greetings, Ajahn, and thank you for taking my question. I learned the structured approach to metta at lay, at lay retreats, where one starts with a dear person, then a good friend, then a neutral person, then a difficult person. I have found that approach to be artificial and forced. Is that how the Buddha taught it? And if I radiate loving kindness upwards to the sky and downwards to the depths, outward and unbounded, it seems to me that I'm encompassing those particular beings without having to particularly focus on each type. Is it necessary to focus on kinds of beings like that? Does the radiating, doesn't the radiating out cover all beings? Yes. A good question. I'm happy that we're answering it now because there's a lot of Buddhists who have been through those kind of uh, courses, and uh, I understand why why it's done that way. It's just a, a systematic uh, technique, but quite often it's thought to be the that it's necessary to go in a particular order. The Buddha doesn't care what order you go in. All that he cares about is that eventually you succeed to some degree. And that the degree is, you're not a failure if you're not an absolute virtuoso. If, if you have trouble having loving kindness for your enemies, uh, it's not surprising. And the Buddha is not making you guilty if you can't manage to do this. Sometimes people will go to monasteries or lay teachers and they will give them bad advice like, you know, you, you should have loving kindness for those people who have injured you and tortured you. <laughs> or uh, that you should have loving kindness for yourself or for your parents, etc. So the Buddha uh, doesn't expect that you can actually pull this off unless you're quite the virtuoso. So he has all kinds of techniques and he doesn't care which, which technique you use, as long as it helps you, as long as it improves you, the quality of your, your emotional life. So in the West, it's quite common that people have difficulty uh, loving, having loving kindness for themselves. And other, other countries and cultures, they, they have no problem with this. They've never been told that you're supposed to have a highly critical opinion of yourself. There's something about the Western culture that makes us self-critical and feel very awkward with having real profound goodwill for ourselves. Uh, if you read the suttas at the time, there's an open admission of that one holds one's own life dearly and that actually nobody else uh, is loved more than oneself. And uh, the Buddha actually agrees with this. He says, one thing is, if you don't love yourself, how can you love anybody else? Because they all love themselves. And so, of course, in the West, uh, you might not love yourself, and most of them don't love themselves either. <laughs> so is that a good idea or a bad idea? <laughs> it's, it's, it would be, make no sense that you have to have you know, a preference for other people's happiness over your own. The idea is that, you, that all, all beings want to be happy. Sometimes they don't know that. Sometimes they have been told other ideas about that they're not supposed to be well, happy, and peaceful, etc. But this doesn't make sense. Uh, so you can start anywhere, and you can also start with no being in particular. So you can start radiating to the, to the north, to the south, to the west, to the east. These are all just techniques. None of them are uh, necessary. None of them are specific. None of them that if you don't do it this way, you won't be following the Buddha's teaching, etc. All that matters is that you move towards a larger and larger understanding of the value to yourself, particularly, of this goodwill. You're the primary beneficiary. And if, you, if it is blocked by any being, you're going to feel that 
blockage. When somebody comes into your mind, whether it's yourself or your worst enemy, and suddenly you feel hostility, anger, uh, negative emotions, afflictive emotions, then who's losing there? You are. By the way, I think that if your enemy wishes you to suffer, you couldn't comply more readily than by being angry at them. It's, they get their wish that you suffer if you inflict suffering on yourself. So don't refuse to co cooperate with your enemy's wishes. Do not be angry at them because that, that makes them happy. <laughs> that, they rejoice at your anger. You need to just uh, not have any uh, negativity or ill will um, towards them. If they've done something to you, you don't want them to do anything more to you. And you, you shouldn't act on their behalf by inflicting negative emotions. So the way I talk about loving kindness usually is that any object which is, uh, produces a warmth in the, in the heart is the object you can start with. And quite often it's uh, innocent uh, beings, uh, quite often children or babies or puppies, uh, uh, they, they, uh, they cannot even formulate the idea of antagonism towards anybody. So if you can start with that and get the, the warmth going. So this is the simile of making the fire, isn't it? It's starting with very dry, uh, tinder, very dry uh, paper and getting the, the warmth going. And if that's all, it, it, at least uh, you can get the, the, the fire started and if you can't think of anything you can add to it without putting it out, <laughs> including yourself, <laughs> then uh, that's fine. At least you got something going. But get that going on a regular basis and learn that this is something that is just doesn't arise spontaneously. You don't wait for this to just happen. You actually practice this. Quite often it'll be a little bit artificial. You'll have to have images and thoughts and words that, that help you move towards that and you'll feel you know, that this is not natural, I, I don't really feel this, uh, I'm just trying artificially, that's fine. It's just an exercise, you got to start. Yesterday we talked about uh, playing the notes before you play the music. Well, this is, use images, memories, uh, imagination to get started, and then build up from there. And eventually the music appears, and the music is the full flooding feeling of goodwill. And so absolutely that any technique that gets you there is fine. And uh, that systematic of, of near, middle, and far away doesn't, doesn't have to be employed at all. So I'm glad you asked that question. And it's very important and I go into it in great depth. And I will talk about it again uh, in, the, in the talks ahead. There's six or seven more, what is six, seven more talks still to go. So I will cover that. So thank you, uh, Sacha, for the question. Our next question comes from Georg B. in Lethbridge, Canada. Thank you, Pietasi. The Ajahn, um, you have talked about the emotions and about metta as a very pure and profound emotion. When I place my awareness on the heart in trying to develop metta, my body sometimes responds with a hard to describe but very sweet feeling in the middle of the chest. I was wondering if that is a natural bodily response or whether I'm sidetracking away from the subject. Um, <clears throat> when I'm with other people, uh, the memory of this sweet feeling in the body is indeed very helpful. Um, what are your thoughts about metta and the body, please? Thank you. Metta certainly sweeps through the body, and, and you, you can experience it in a number of different ways. And certainly the, the feeling in the chest is, is very famous, that the, we point to our heart, etc. We don't want to necessarily make it some... It, it comes in different degrees and it is felt in different ways. So we don't want to make it too, that we require a, a dramatic experience um, of it and that we, we, we don't think we have it if, unless it's absolutely dramatic that we begin trembling and faint. <laughs> uh, no, it's, 
it's basically, I think you feel, if you have loving kindness, suddenly you feel like you're an adult. <laughs> you feel like you're a, a mature, balanced human being on the earth, and you're, you're looking at other beings with a sense of self-confidence and security, and you're not being petty or hostile or childish anymore. And that feels very good. That feels like health. And then you walk about, and it it's like an adult does feel, perhaps in a room full of children, if you visit the grade one class and everything, what can you think? <laughs> Any growing up feels a great deal of goodwill towards these children. They, they're open and harmless, and all you feel is, is profound goodwill, and you hope that they all are happy and uh, that they don't encounter any sort of negative things. So that feeling that you would have if you went to visit the grade one class, Mrs. Johnson's grade one class, you know, to give a talk. <laughs> I have occasionally... And I have given talks to, uh, to uh, children. Uh, the, some of the Buddhist families bring their kids to the monastery. In fact, you can see some uh, videos of uh, stories <laughs> being told to the, the kids. And so you have, you're, you're the adult in the room, and sometimes uh, even in the adult world, there aren't any. <laughs> you have to be the adult in the room. You have to uh, be aloof to the, the petty games that people play, and you carry this goodwill, and you don't expect them to know about this. I mean, encountering this teaching from the Buddha, the great genius of 2,500 years ago, tremendous breakthrough in understanding, and he made sure that it was passed along to thousands of very mature disciples who carried along, and you're being handed this brilliant uh, type of emotional health that is very rarely talked about in ordinary society. And so we get to, this is a very uh, unique and uh, rare opportunity to hear about this again and again and to feel it and then to practice it and carry it into ordinary society. And you will, you will be able to do this. And it changes everything. It gives you an entirely different way of navigating throughout life and not just for a day or an hour or just for a retreat, but in ordinary life. And so, yes, there are bodily feelings to it. They vary. There are various um, intensities and all of them are good. So whether it's cranked to number two or up to, up to number 11, uh, it's all good. Uh, you can see the descriptions that uh, some be people talk about that they, they really can be very exalted feelings that are flooding through you. And uh, they can be very inspiring too. People write it down and they make poems about it and so forth. And it, but it can be at a, at a, uh, even at a light, um, a light kind of pervasive feeling through the, through the chest, through the heart, through the, through the entire body. It's a beautiful thing to carry along, just walking along the sidewalk, wa uh, navigating your way down hallways, etc. This is uh, talking to people in ordinary situations, walking into a restaurant, walking into a store. This is where you uh, have the opportunity to enjoy this uh, experience. So uh, you can you can even record some of the feelings that you have because quite often later on you 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 wonder it's hard to recapture in memory these the feelings so it's quite often interesting to kind of record where where you actually felt these things in the body you know in the like certain traditions have these uh chakras and various body centers buddha the buddhists don't really have specifics about that but those things are all valid they're just uh, you know sometimes you feel feel it in your throat, yeah. you get choked up, sometimes you feel it in your heart, sometimes you feel it behind your eyes, uh, sometimes you feel it throughout your body, sometimes it, it flows up your spine, little, uh, it, maybe your hair stands up. The, the Buddha talks about this, that the, the, the hair on your head stands up sometimes. And so these are all uh, manifestations 
can be manifestations of loving kindness. And they're all uh, beautiful, and uh, it's just a matter of exploring them. There's no one perfect place where metta always occurs, and it feels like this, and there is no other thing. Those are kind of just rigid techniques. So be open and uh, explore how and where you feel it in the body. And the fact that you, you carry that feeling, that, that feeling, by the way, is called the nimitta, the nimitta of loving-kindness. It has a characteristic tone and feeling to it. And even after you're not thinking about this, you can carry that, not, not just for hours, you can carry it for even days or weeks. And you kind of refer to the, <clears throat> the feeling tone of loving-kindness, and that, that refreshes you about that. And then that changes the way you think. So then you think these uh, thoughts of goodwill, understanding, compassion, and that reinforces the feeling, and then you re go back to the feeling, and that reinforces the thoughts, and then the thoughts reinforce the feeling, so it's a feedback loop. So that's how it works. Our next question comes from Will K. in Oberlin, USA, and Will will be asking his question live as well. Hello, Ajahn. Thank you for all your teachings so far. Uh, I had a question about an experience that, um, that I had yesterday uh, practicing this metta meditation. And particularly uh, in the evening, I had a lot of joy and a lot of energy arise. And overall, it was a very wonderful experience. Um, but then I went to bed and I, and I just couldn't fall asleep. And I might fall asleep for a brief amount of time, but I'd wake back up and just be brightly awake. And initially, I tried to just continue practicing the metta meditation while lying in bed. But after a few hours, I became kind of desperate and eventually just went downstairs and watched a little TV so I could finally fall asleep. So wondering if you have any suggestions about how to work with this, uh, maybe more energy than, than I want or, or should be having. <laughs> yeah, Thank yeah. You. that can happen, uh, uh, especially if you're uh, sincerely practicing breath meditation or mindfulness or loving kindness, you can get the things rolling and then it's hard to shut down. Uh, in uh, monasteries, especially in the forest monasteries, we have a cure for it. You may, we make you stay up all night <laughs> and sit there <laughs> and meditate. And there's no getting up and going and watching TV. <laughs> so uh, when you're, you know, it's not a big deal to uh, sometimes be so energized that you can't fall asleep. However, I, it, one uh, option is, of course, to listen to a Dhamma talk. Uh, the voice of another can sometimes uh, bring, you d uh, bring the energies down. Uh, so I'd, I recommend that you uh, put a podcast of Ajahn Sona on, and I will put you to sleep. <laughs> but the, uh, the danger of it is that when you listen to Ajahn Sona to help you put yourself, put, put yourself to sleep, then then you tend to, every time I talk, you go to sleep. It's like a hypnotic suggestion. So maybe it's not such a good idea. But uh, yes, the voice of another uh, is very good. You can also read the, the teachings of the Buddha to help you even off the energies. Uh, but some people also choose to just stay up and say, okay, well, this is a great opportunity. I think I'll stay up and, and meditate. Just get out of bed. And instead of lying there, wishing to go to sleep, then I think I won't wish to go to sleep. I'll be up till two, three in the morning, and I'll be meditating, just like the monks. And uh, as I say, once a week in these forest monasteries, it's an all-nighter, right, not, not just till two or three, but right through till dawn and then the, through the next day. So, you know, a little sleep deprivation suffused with love is not the worst thing in the world, by all means. <clears throat> Our next question comes from Ranga Jay in Homdel, USA, and Ranga's asking his question live. Yes, thank you. Uh, hello, Ajahn. In your Banteji and the Smelly Dog story last night, you mentioned that metta can transform perception, and in this case, making a smelly dog not so smelly. And I've also heard that Sariputta could transform his perception of a piece of wood to be beautiful, neutral, or ugly at will. So I'm wondering, Ajahn, if you could elaborate on how metta can transform perception and perhaps how it differs from how other factors such as sati or upeka might transform perception as well. Thank you. 
Yes, yes. It is the transformation of the world. You, you transform <clears throat> beings which you either uh, dismissive of, callous towards, or afraid of, to beings that you ha look on with a kind of kindliness and compassion and not dismissive. Even the least uh, being has some value. And so the world suddenly is populated with beings who are just uh, struggling with ignorance, usually. They, they, they are not intrinsically um, neutral or negative. They are just simply without proper instruction. And as you come along and get wiser and start to feel better, you, you, natural sympathy arises for all those who haven't heard such things. They've never heard such encouragements. And so they behave in certain uh, negative ways. And so you know what it's like. And it's not that it's nobody's fault. It's just the absence of understanding. So that changes your perception of all beings. And it's quite ra it can be very, very radical. And as you see, there are many accounts of this. As people wake up to, to loving kindness, they they are able to embrace uh, the, the people who are marginalized, rejected, or despised, actually. And not only that, the, even as the animals as well. One of the things that monks, uh, monks have to live in the woods, the forests, and they're full of animals, wild animals, and they have to live without any kind of protection or weapons. And they need to transform their uh, view of these animals and they have to start early so that you're not in a state of fear uh, with them, that you're in a state of goodwill towards them, that you understand their behavior. And their behavior is pretty simple. They, they're, uh, they're defending their territories sometimes. They're suspicious. They, they need to eat, etc. So you start to have a, a sense of their motivations. And they, instead of being just fearful um, or dis despicable, they're transformed into beings that have motives and that you understand. So your perceptions of all of that changes. Uh, so all of, all of life has changed through this enhanced uh, uh, I, uh, perception. And, and this is what happens too. If, if people are talked into, say, racist ideas, ne negative racist ideas about a certain other tribe or other culture, you can see that they, they suddenly perceive them differently. And then once they encounter them in a, a, as individuals and they find out that they're intelligent, they're responsive, they're, they're artistic, they have goodwill, then their perception changes. So it's certainly not just a matter of changing perception. Now, the Buddha gives the, the example with Sariputta where he can look at a block of wood and he can see it as beautiful, he can see it as neutral, and he can see it as ugly, repulsive. And that's fine for a block of wood. But ultimately, we're actually interested in transforming our perception to serve us, not to be uh, captive to our perceptions, but to cultivate and transform the world around us so that it, it, these perce our perceptions aid our well-being. One of the things that monks uh, are enjoined to do or urged to do by the Buddha, and it's somewhat difficult in modern times, is to go and spend some time with corpses in a, in a charnel ground. In the time of the Buddha, the, one of the ways of disposing of bodies was you simply dumped it in the woods. There was no burial or anything. They just dump it in the woods, and these corpses are there. There's animals eating at them. They're bloated, and and the the Buddha asked the monks to go and stay with those corpses, and to see their perceptions about the the nature of the of the body, their own body, and he says, now understand that that the body of that corpse is is just like your body. Your body also will be like that. So he's asking them to do a transference of, of change of perception about the nature of your body. He's also uh, in saying, you know, it's just a body. Don't get carried away. You know, lots of people are terrified of de dead bodies and 
There's all kinds of, uh, repu- you know, uh, all kinds of religious rules around dead bodies. So the Buddhist uh, idea is that it's just elements. That's all it is. And in fact, I've done um, done that. I've been had the good fortune, quote, <laughs> of in Thailand in the forests to be at a monastery where corpses were brought to the monastery and just left there for the monks to contemplate as the corpse slowly decomposes. And I've spent entire nights alone in the forest with corpses, with maggots and all these, and the terrible smells coming out of them. And you can, you can actually be there with, with joy and ease and well-being and no fear and no repulsion and you can see this process taking place. And this is your, you can change your perceptions of all of these things. The Buddha also asked the monks to rehearse, uh, change a perception of what is considered often beautiful by the world. So the things that people pursue and are attracted by, the Buddha asks you to take that apart and analyze that so that you're not um, craving and wanting that which is called beautiful by the world. You, again, it's elements, and you're not afraid or repulsed by what is repulsive and fearful to the world. So the Buddha is saying, decondition yourself. This is, in modern psychology, they understand this about conditioning. So you're conditioned. Decondition yourself, systematically uh, give yourself freedom from grasping and craving for what is conventionally called beautiful thing, you know, a, a, a Lamborghini or a champagne or valuable this and valuable that. These things, if you are craving them and wanting them, you're in a sense of deficit. You're in a sense of debt. You, you feel unfulfilled until you can get those things. Then usually a mysterious thing happens where you're not, you're not satisfied even when you get them. So both repulsion and attraction means that you're still in a state of, you're a magnet. <laughs> so you want to demagnetize, so you feel neither re- repulsion nor attraction. And when people hear this, they think, oh, that would be, that's weird. That would be, wouldn't that be boring and so forth? No, boredom is a form of aversion. It's not boring, it's freeing. You feel that you don't, need these things because you have a sense of completion and fullness and you don't have this sense of aversion which is a negative feeling and you don't have the sense of desire which is uh, also a negative feeling so this is uh, the process of changing your perceptions about things and you systematically work away and exercise on, on this people who go into medicine of course have to do this with with bodies they have to open up bodies and so forth, and people who, who, are, who can't overcome their perceptions don't become doctors. <laughs> they, you have to deal with the body. It's not always pretty. So uh, this is kind of what the monk uh, and any, anybody uh, should do if you want to be free. And so you work on these perceptions. And so you get to the stage where you can have great, goodwill for people who would do you harm even. So that's another change of perception. Not only the people who would who are very friendly to you and so forth, that's easy. But although even the people who do you harm, if, if you can have loving kindness for them, it's all to your benefit, right? So next question. Our next question comes from Anonymous in Pierce, USA. The last two lines of the Discourse on Loving-Kindness, quote, being freed from all sense desires is not born again into this world, unquote, always evokes some discord for me. As I understand it, in the Theravada tradition, there is little or no emphasis on being born again as a bodhisattva. But in other Buddhist traditions, this concept is written and talked about and holds value as a virtue and aspiration. I personally have always felt that I wanted to be born again into this world, even before I learned of the bodhisattva path. Perhaps this is more of personal craving or clinging, 
But in my experience, there is much joy and beauty in this world, and what better assignment as a reborn human than to reveal more of this to others and help them awaken? How can I best understand the notion of a bodhisattva in the Theravada tradition when I am chanting a desire to not be born again, assumedly to get off the endless wheel of suffering through karma and rebirth? Yeah, this is, this is very... I'm glad I have a chance to talk about this a little bit because um, some of the people who will be watching this uh, have been more or less exposed to Buddhism through the Mahayana schools where there's a great emphasis on uh, the bodhisattva path and this is the kind of vow to remain within the samsara to, in order to help other beings and so forth. And uh, this is something that developed uh, more or less after the time of the historical Buddha. Uh, the Buddha himself, of course, talks about his career as a bodhisattva, but never advocated that. Uh, he didn't advocate this to the monks. He basically taught this arahant path so he advised people to get out of samsara as soon as possible. Uh, I think it's a very exceptional being, uh, extraordinarily exceptional being that, that ends up uh, completing the, the path to becoming a, a fully enlightened Buddha. Uh, and that's what in the Theravada we refer, refer to that as the, the, bodhisattva, the bodhisattva rather than just a bodhisattva. Um, this is something that you have to reflect on yourself, and I think we need to emphasize how great a sacrifice it really is. Because as you, as you talked about that this life can be joyful and so forth, it can be murderously horrifying. And all you got to do is use your imagination to realize how many ways there are to be in physical pain, in deprivation, in just the, the history of humans on the planet is just soaked in horror and blood. And to wish to come back, what you want, you're wishing to come back and be lucky, <laughs> have a good a good time, but, you, you know, to be born like a thalidomide baby without any arms and so forth, <clears throat> and then manage to just get to, to be five years old with cancer, is, is, is that what you're looking forward to? I don't know. Um, we have to emphasize this it can be a very, very rough experience to exist as a human, and even more so as an animal. The only blessing of the animals is that they don't have imagination. They can't project into the future and remember the past. They, they're just terrified in the present. <laughs> so we, we have to be very realistic about this. And then it's only when we really make the realistic description that I, I will give you the opportunity to decide whether you really want to come back. And if you are really willing to face some very dire situations which you could find yourself in. And then I will, uh, then I think it's a sincere aspiration and, and it's up to you to decide that. Um, now the, what will, what in the next sutta, I, I'll, I'll be discoursing on this uh, uh, Karaniya Metta Sutta uh, for several talks, but by the, I think the ninth and the 10th talk, I talk on another sutta called the 11 benefits of loving kindness. And that concludes with, if one does not attain Nibbana, one is reborn in the higher heavens. So in, interestingly, from a Buddhist point of view, the booby prize is heaven. <laughs> if, you don't, if you can't make it to the Nibbana, if you can't attain the Nibbana, well, you'll at least end up in the higher heavens if you cultivate this uh, loving-kindness. Uh, Buddhism doesn't, doesn't regard even the heavens as, as adequate um, because of their, they, they have a limited duration. Uh, you know, we're, we're, this is Christmas Day, and that's apparently the, Christ, the uh, Christian's holiday, <laughs> the, the birth of Christ and so forth. And in that, in that schema of the universe, a certain small proportion 
<laughs> of humans end up in heaven, the rest in hell, <laughs> and uh, it's forever. <laughs> but that's not the Buddhist take on things. And by the way, uh, just a little bit about this heaven business. You will not find descriptions of heaven in the Old Testament, and you you will really not find any explicit descriptions of heaven in the New Testament. You would you will not find that. You will find some indication, some mention of this idea, but no fleshed out ideas. In Buddhism, on the other hand, 500 years before Christ, you will find absolutely detailed descriptions of multiple levels, all the particulars of heaven fully fleshed out and described. And so it's not that we're not familiar with this, uh, but we... They were, they've been there, done that. In other words, they, they already have experience of these things, and they all are realms that dissolve eventually. And so you have to face this realistically. You have to face this realistically and not come at... And I, I get people telling me that they want to come back as a cat, you know, or a dog, and I say, please, you know, I, maybe you saw a cat that that didn't have to go to work. They sleep on the bed all day and get fed and so forth. But it's not, a, it's not an easy gig being a cat, really. You, you don't want to come back as a cat, really. You'll never hear this in Asia. You never hear, I want to come back as a cat, I want to come back as a dog. No. Uh, only in the West will you occasionally hear that, that you want to come back as a dog or a cat. That's very sentimental and short-visioned thinking. Please don't come back as a cat or dog. <laughs> So you can see that <clears throat> the, the, the idea of, of deliberately coming back is not encouraged by the Buddha, but he doesn't really think that most people will get out of samsara very soon. And he is giving you strategies for improving the quality of your existence and trying to ensure at least another lifetime or more of positive types of rebirth. So he does give you the skills, and loving kindness is one of them. It has a, it, it has some insurance that you won't fall into the realms of, of deep torment and psychological distress. It's not the highest goal, but it's as good as you can get within samsara. So the Buddha is offering this, says, I, you know, please, I, the less suffering, the better. If you can get out, get out, but here's the strategies for improving the quality of your, your life in this human life and beyond. Our next question is from Rob B. in Portsmouth, United Kingdom. Can you say something about how to overcome the natural tendency to react with fear or anger to disagreeable events in the world? Yes. Uh, the first thing you should ask yourself is like, how would the Buddha feel about this? And there's all kinds of things where the Buddha insists that he is under no circumstance is his, his unshakable sense of well-being disturbed. And then you think, well, what about Auschwitz? What about Hiroshima? What about the Second World War? What about the, the, the Black Plague? What about, what about this? What about thalidomide babies? What about this? I mean, he's, he's, he's completely indifferent to this. He, he's not moved by this. Uh, right. <laughs> You're right. Be, why, how can he possibly be that way? Because he's saying, look, I told you this is what happens in samsara. I don't approve of it. I don't think it's good. It tells me that this is not designed by a loving creator. Uh, this, is, this, is, this situation is clearly not a work of compassion and love. This is a brutal... Uh, universe which can be very, very painful for beings. And his, he says, I personally don't want to come back here. And, but I want to be realistic. Everything, any, all of those things can and do and will happen. 
Now let's get it straight. How should we feel about this? Because if you think you should grieve and be shocked and saddened at these things, then you should always be grieving, shocked, and saddened every second of the day and night because it is going on 24 hours a day. But just the fact that you don't see it at that time or that's not on the news doesn't mean it's not happening. It's happening every second of the day, 24 hours a day, all the time, somebody, terrible things are happening. So if you feel that you should be in a state of sadness, shock, disgust, etc., that, that's an impossible way to live because you will be that way all the time and you won't live very long. So you have to decide, look, that stuff goes on. I'm not closing my eyes to it. It goes on. And I have committed myself to the idea that it's foolish of me to add more suffering to it. There's enough suffering there. So I'm not going to fall into emotions like grief and shock and horror and uh, trauma and everything because it is just more suffering and it makes no sense. So I don't care what's going on. I'm not going to contribute my emotions to that. <clears throat> I'm not going to make anybody suffer and I'm not going to make myself suffer. Why would I? So strangely enough, the rational response to all of this tragedy is to increase the well-being of your practice. Now, this doesn't mean that you don't see it or that you're smiling saying, oh, it's all God's will. It'll work out in the end. No, we don't say that at all. We say that it's a horror show. I shall not add my own distress to it. And I Whenever I have the opportunity, I will relieve the emotional distress of anybody else and teach them also, don't fall into the horror, the grief, the shock, the trauma of this. Don't do that. Just be realistic. It happens. And the response is, stay well, stay happy, stay peaceful. And you can, you will, it's not like you won't be, do anything or be unmotivated. You'll be completely happy to uh, be generous, be kind, be competent, help wherever you can. There's no conflict with that. So that's something you got to work out really well. Look at the negative events and realize they're always going on. The, the fact that Second World War is over hardly makes any difference to the mortality rate on the planet. It's everybody born dies and sickness accidents, terrible things happen along the way. And that's pretty statistically constant. <laughs> so we have to say that's the, that's the view. Look at it with open eyes and decide that the rational way to be in that is well in the midst of that. So that's a, that's a rehearsal. You need to, to keep up this practice. And this is, this is the nature of goodwill. This is not Pollyanna stuff. This is serious, straight look at reality and deciding how should you feel in the midst of it. Ajahn, our next question is from Patricia S. in Dundas, Canada. Lungpo, experiencing the Metta Sutta in the living way that you present it shows the Buddha's brilliance with communication. When you said that teaching is a supreme skill, I let go of a comparing mind a mind that has for years sought to try to translate my experience of the Dhamma and my practice into the secular workplace, the community where I live, and friendships. As you guide us towards seeing sila as the foundation, I am experiencing a release of tension and a definite flow of energy. I feel metta suffusing the body and mental faculties and an expansion of energy that then pervades outward in all directions. It seems as if mano, citta, and vinaya, vien, vinyana are harmonizing, balancing, flowing in sync. Can you please comment on this embodied experience? Thank you. Well, here's the comment. A. <laughs> you got an A. <laughs> you get a G for effort and an A for results. Uh, wonderful. And uh, that is a possibility of a human in lay life. Patricia is in lay life. 
she's been practicing for a good period of time and being here and so forth. And this is wonderful. And this is the possibility. And this, this you know, feel it and enjoy it and deepen it and, and uh, share it if possible. But it's not a, if, you know, quite often people are resistant to this kind of talk, you know. Strangely enough, you can offer them the best thing. It's like offering $100 bills on the sidewalk. You know, people will walk right by you. They think it's, it's got to be a trap. There's got to, you can't be offering me $100. So good, all kinds of wonderful advice and so forth are, uh, cannot be shared often, <clears throat> um, except in this, this uh, tea time here. This, by the way, is a trick. I've tricked you. You came here to listen to me and therefore I can communicate. And it seems, and you're, you're absorbing it, you're thinking, right, of course, oh, that's wonderful. I must tell Marge about that. Just try. <laughs> because Marge didn't come to <laughs> listen to you. <laughs> so we have to have the tricks of having, so a monastery is a trick, a psychological trick. A Dhamma talk is a psychological trick. It's all a psychological trick in order for people to just drop their defenses, all of their criticals, and say, offer them a little present. And they finally say, thank you for the present. Do I owe you anything? No. <laughs> you can have it for free. So this is, the most beautiful possibilities are able, you, you can receive these things, their gifts, but just try to give them away in normal life. It's very, very difficult. Your relatives won't want to hear this. Your friends won't want to hear this, etc. I don't know. It's, it's hard to give away the jewels. You know. Our next question comes from Anonymous in Pittsburgh, USA. I experienced a sudden great pleasure and grew a silly smile when I thought about goodwill towards some people. However, my mind keeps thinking, how are you going to sustain your personal goals? You still need to do things in the mundane world that may lie out, lie, out of the, lie out of the realm of loving kindness. This way of living does not seem realistically sustainable. Could you tell me why I'm wrong, and how do I convince myself that this is not true when these stories come up? Right. I think that people find out. That they, they think they have to be um, motivated. You get all kinds of... Uh, self-help books and all kinds of stuff that tell you you got to be ambitious, you got to be, you know, the nice guys finish last and all this kind of nonsense. It's, it is truly nonsense. That's not how things work. The motivation of loving kindness, first of all, is inexhaustible. You, it, you, don't, burn, you don't burn your system out. The negative emotions, the negative motion, motivations are self-de-energizing. Self, uh, <clears throat> And they disturb your sleep and all kinds of things. Loving kindness does not. That's one of the benefits is that you sleep well. You, you feel you don't have pangs of conscience, etc. And it doesn't mean suddenly that you become incompetent. You can no longer do chemistry. You can no longer do physics because you have loving kindness. You know, what? What are you talking about? You can't do music. You can't dance. You can't sing. What? Why would that be? You can't. You can't sell something to somebody. You can't make a product that's useful to, to the world because you have loving kindness. What, what, are, what are you thinking? Loving kindness is perfectly competent, and uh, you should be competent in your ordinary life. And by the way, you have to make a livelihood. And, and the Buddha is by the so, the Buddha is not saying everybody should be like a monk. No, monks should be like monks. Lay people should be like lay people. And lay people have to raise families, and they have to make a living, and they have to ne negotiate, and they have to sell things, and they have to buy things, and so forth. And there's nothing immoral about that. Nothing whatsoever. It's a little distracting sometimes. But the same, they have the same obligation as everybody that you, you, you should make this as good a, a good experience as possible. And loving kindness does this. It, it helps your relationship with your family. It helps your relationship with uh, your fellow workers, the, your customers, or whoever you're dealing with, the people in your educational system. Why would it not be useful? Why, is it, why would it not be practical? Not at all. And by the way, loving kindness never lets anybody take advantage of you. 
Why would that be? Why would you, if you have good concern for yourself, why would you let somebody take advantage of you? Loving kindness is not a doormat. Nobody walks over you. You're strong because you care about yourself. You care about other people. You, you don't want anybody manipulating anybody else. So you don't manipulate anybody else. You don't take advantage of anybody else. And you don't let anybody take advantage of you. So that is a, just uh, increasing your understanding of what this thing called loving kindness really is. Our next question is from Grace W. in Los Angeles, USA. In the tea time yesterday, you mentioned that metta means also care for the well-being of oneself. How can I tell when I'm acting in accordance to metta for myself versus ego self-protection? Uh, well, it has a, a tone of no fear. So, but don't. <clears throat> there's often misunderstanding, and I, it's part of the culture, I suppose, about that you're you're supposed to put everybody else first and you last. I think it's a leftover from Christianity. I hate to be so critical on on the on Jesus's birthday, but. <laughs> Let's say there's been a lot of misunderstandings of what Jesus... Maybe I should do a whole tea time on what Jesus really meant <laughs> from a Buddhist point of view. But anyway, I, I won't. Uh, but there's this weird thing where you feel like everybody else uh, is first and you should be last and that's the way it should be. It's not that way. It's that everybody else is worthy of goodwill and so are you. And you're the one that most responsible for taking care of yourself. Nobody else really can. Nobody else has access to your mind and your emotions. Only you can do this, and that's why you must do it. <clears throat> so don't worry too much about ego. Don't worry too much about ego. Goodwill will make you feel ego as a burden. Like, ego is like, I need to I need to be well liked by everybody. I need to this and this, but that's impossible and that's a burden. So goodwill for yourself will say, I don't like that burden. I I have to stop caring so much about what people think about me. Whether they like me, they don't like me. I don't, I, I have to stop that. It's too taken up too much space in my head and I care about myself. So I'm going to stop worrying about that. I am going to take care of myself. So that's the difference between loving kindness and ego. Ego weighs a lot. Loving kindness weighs nothing. You feel light as a feather. And uh, that's what you should look forward to.